Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Only One Thing. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 21st, 2019. In this week's gospel story, Jesus enters a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomes him into her home. As soon as Jesus, and presumably his disciples, enter the house, Martha busies herself with the practical work of hospitality, cleaning, organizing, cooking, and serving. Her sister Mary, meanwhile, sits at Jesus' feet, listening to all he says with rapt attention and paying no heed to her harried sister. We have no idea how long Martha's patience holds. I imagine she spends a good hour or two in the kitchen, banging potlids around to express her displeasure. But soon enough she boils over and storms into the dining room to confront Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But Jesus, instead of chiding Mary or offering Martha the recognition she craves, answers thus, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. It's a brief story, but I have to confess that it leaves me feeling conflicted and uneasy. I spent a good part of this week trying to make it palatable, to make it okay, by which I mean I spent a good part of the week trying to make Jesus palatable and okay. But that, mercifully, is not my job. My job is to encounter the gospel and to allow it to encounter me. My job is to engage with its paradoxes as honestly as I can. Here, then, are the results of my encounter and my engagement, messy as they are. 1. Seriously, Jesus, you can't do better than this? I grew up in a traditional South Asian culture that placed a supremely high value on hospitality. I also grew up in an ethnic and religious context where women's work was considered less spiritually important than men's. Some of my earliest and most vivid memories involved sari-clad women, my mom, my aunts, and dozens of other church ladies, hovering anxiously over tables laden with fragrant, delicious dishes, refilling a cup of water here, offering a third helping of rice and chicken curry there, mopping up a coffee spill somewhere else, while the men talked, studied, debated, relaxed, and feasted. Whether the occasion was a weekday home Bible study, a Sunday evening potluck, or the all-church Christmas party, the women prepped, cooked, served, and cleaned to make the gathering festive and fun. They did so with a strong sense of dignity and pride. After all, this was the work they had been raised to do. It was a work that consolidated their identities as good women of God. But it didn't take me long as a kid to figure out that what really counted as spiritual work was the work the men did. The work of preaching, teaching, leading worship, and presiding over communion. To be fair, I don't think this was because the men were boors. I think it was because the patriarchal culture that raised them made sure they never experienced the inside of a kitchen, a pantry, a clothes dryer, or a bottle of pine salt. They literally never saw the work that makes hospitality possible. 
This is some of the baggage I bring to this week's lectionary. So when I read Jesus' words to Martha, my first response is irritation, and my second is disappointment. Yes, Jesus elevated the status of women by affirming Mary's right to discipleship. Traditionally, only male disciples sat at their teacher's feet to study the Torah. This gender reversal is a huge deal, and I don't take it for granted. And yet, and yet I wish Jesus had done more. I wish he'd rounded up his male disciples, ushered them into the kitchen, and directed them to bake the bread, fry the fish, and chop the vegetables, all while Martha took a much-needed nap. I wish he'd said, Peter, you wash the dishes, James and John, you put away the leftovers, Judas, get the beds made, Andrew, you're on sweeping and mopping duty, and the rest of you, go ask the women what else they need done. Oh, and in case you boys are wondering, this girly stuff is not a prelude to the sacred. This stuff is the sacred. Perhaps it sounds trivial or silly, but I can't help wondering. If Jesus had taken a more radical stance at Martha's house, would his followers still have wasted the next 2,000 years arguing over a woman's rightful place in the home and in the church? Would countless women today still feel so self-conscious, judged and shamed over how well they do or don't juggle the competing demands of their domestic, professional, and religious lives? Maybe. But maybe not. Don't get me wrong, I do believe that Jesus championed women in a thousand essential ways during his time on earth. But the fact remains that in this particular story, Martha's burdensome sense of obligation and duty had cultural roots which Jesus didn't confront on her behalf. Her anxiety didn't come from nowhere. She lived inside a social and religious system that fully expected her to behave as she did, and the power of that system was formidable. In other words, Martha needed deep, systemic change in order to live into the permission Jesus tried to offer her. She couldn't embrace such radical freedom by herself. She needed the folks with power to embrace it with her and for her. So I wonder, what would it be like for us contemporary Christians to examine the systems and structures that still bind people like Martha today? What would it cost us to dismantle those systems? What would it look like to create concrete opportunities for today's Marthas to rest, to sit freely at Jesus' feet, to find support, community, and help as they struggle to become disciples? What would it look like to stand in solidarity with your nearest Martha as she unlearns a lifetime's worth of messaging about what makes her soul lovable, valuable, honorable, and holy? 2. Wait, you want us to be unbalanced? The bottom line is, it's ridiculous to champion contemplation over action, word over deed, the mystic over the activist, worship over service. Why? Because we need both. Our common life requires both. How would the church ever survive without Marthas? Marthas who bake the Eucharistic bread, Marthas who tend the grounds, Marthas who arrange the flowers and restock the votive candles and sew the pageant costumes and dust the pews. After all, isn't it telling that Mary and Martha were sisters? Their differences couldn't erase the basic fact that they belonged together. They needed each other. They held each other in balance. Right? Or not right? 
The truth is, I've tried and tried this week to read Mary and Martha's story as a story about balance. But I don't think Jesus' ringing endorsement of Mary's choosing the better part will allow me to get away with that tepid reading. Because the story is not about balance. The story is about choosing the one thing, the best thing, and forsaking everything else for its sake. The story is about single-mindedness, about a passionate and undistracted pursuit of a single, mind-blowing treasure. Think of Jesus' most evocative parables. They all point in the same direction. The pearl of great price, the buried treasure in the field, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Christianity is not about balance. It's about extravagance. It's not about being reasonable. It's about being wildly, madly, and deeply in love with Jesus. As soon as Jesus entered Martha's house, he turned the place upside down. He messed with Martha's expectations, routines, and habits. He insisted on costly change. Perhaps Martha's mistake was that she assumed she could invite Jesus into her life and then carry on with that life as usual, maintaining control, privileging her own priorities, and clinging to her long-cherished agenda and schedule. What was Jesus' response to that assumption? Nope, absolutely not. That's not how discipleship works. In contrast, Mary recognized that Jesus' presence in her house required a radical shift, a role change, a wholehearted surrender. Every action, every decision, every priority would have to be filtered through this new love, this new devotion, this new passion. Why? Because Jesus was no ordinary guest. He was the guest who would be host. The host would provide the bread of life, the living water, and the wine that was his own blood to anyone who would sit at his feet and receive his hospitality. It's easy to lose sight of Mary. In our work-frenzied, performance-driven lives, it's easy to believe that pondering, listening, waiting, and resting have no value. In our age of snark and cynicism, it's easy to roll our eyes at spiritual earnestness. In a world that is profoundly broken and unjust, it's easy to argue that we should leave contemplation to the monastics and throw all of our time and energy into social engagement. To be clear, we are called to work for justice. We are called to bring liberty to the oppressed and comfort to the afflicted. But every work we do must begin, Jesus insists, from only one thing. It must begin with him. It must begin at his feet. 3. Okay, it's true. I ache to be whole. Jesus didn't call Martha out for her hospitality. It was not her cooking, cleaning, or serving that bothered him. Notice the actual problem he named. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. The root meaning of the word worry is strangle or seize by the throat and tear. The root meaning of the word distraction is a separation or a dragging apart of something that should be whole. These are violent words, words that wound and fracture, states of mind that render us incoherent, divided, and unwhole. Jesus found Martha in just such a state of fragmentation, a condition in which she could not enjoy his company, savor his presence, find inspiration in her work, receive anything he wished to offer her, or show him genuine love. Instead, 
All she could do was question his love. Lord, do you not care? Fixate on herself. My sister has left me to do all the work by myself. And triangulate. Tell her then to help me. Does any of this sound familiar? Is your inner life so fragmented, so strangled, so incoherent, that you struggle to give and receive love? Are you quick to seethe? Has your busyness become an affront to the people you long to host? Is your worry keeping you from being fully present, fully engaged, fully alive? Have you lost the ability to attend, to linger, to delve deep? Are you using your packed schedule to avoid intimacy with God or with others? My answer to many of these questions is yes. If yours is yes too, then I wonder if we can hear Jesus' words to Martha not as a criticism, but as an invitation, not as a rebuke, but as a soothing balm. Jesus knows that we ache to be whole. Jesus knows that we place brutal and devastating expectations on ourselves. Jesus knows that our resentments, like Martha's, are often born of envy. Martha longs to sit where Mary sat. She longed to take delight in Jesus' words. She longed to surrender her heavy burden and allow Jesus to host her. Maybe we long for these good things, too. Here's the good news. There is need of only one thing, and if we choose it, no one will ever have the power to take it away from us. So let's choose it. Jesus, our host, is waiting. For books this week, Dan reviews Laughing at the Devil, Seeing the World with Julian of Norwich by Amy Laura Hall. Her mother said that she asked too many questions. As a girl, she had an insatiable desire to experience the love of God beyond the rituals of the church. She survived the plagues of 1349 and 1362 that decimated three-quarters of the population of Norwich on England's east coast. Then came her visions, showings, or what she called her ravings, during a period of sickness when she almost died. Although not a nun but a lay person, she lived a mixed life in both the secular and sacred realms. She even had the temerity to ask the bishop to bless her plans to live as an anchoress in a tiny cell next to the church. He agreed, and so from there she read, prayed, dispensed spiritual wisdom, and for twenty years questioned and meditated upon her continuing visions. Her ultimate act of audacity was not only to believe that God had truly spoken to her in her sixteen visions, and that the visions exceeded the limited wisdom of the Church, but also that God intended for her to write them down in a vernacular book so that ordinary believers could benefit from them. This was the age of the Crusades, Chaucer, when John Wycliffe and the Lollards were martyred for religious transgression, the Papal Schism of 1378 to 1418, and a strictly enforced social hierarchy that greatly restricted the acceptable roles for women. Nonetheless, today Julian of Norwich is best remembered for having written the first book composed by a woman in English, Revelations of Divine Love. How she and her manuscript ever survived is part mystery and part miracle. Amy Laurel Hall, a professor of ethics at Duke University Divinity School, began teaching a seminar on Julian in 1999 and says that she has become her personal lodestar. Julian's basic message was both simple and radical. In one vision, Jesus spoke to her, Lo, how I love thee. 
In her introductory chapter, Hall quotes Julian, Though the three persons of the Trinity are all equal in themselves, my soul understood love most clearly. Yes, and God wants us to consider and enjoy love in everything. And this is the knowledge of which we are most ignorant. For some of us believe that God is almighty and has power to do everything, and that he has wisdom and knows how to do everything, but that he is all love and is willing to do everything. There we stop. Hall coins the word omniamity to describe this love of God. Her book is a mixed genre reading of Julian that is autobiographical, theological, and political. And so in one of my own favorite sayings, Julian advises us that the greatest honor we can give Almighty God is to live gladly because of the knowledge of his love. For movies this week, Dan reviews Amazing Grace. This simple film has a complicated history. Back in January of 1972, Aretha Franklin gave two concerts on back-to-back nights before live audiences at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Watts, L.A. She was 29 at the time and already a superstar with hits like Respect and Think. She was on the cover of Time magazine in 1968. But she wanted to return to her roots and sing the songs of her childhood days in her father's Detroit church. The album Amazing Grace that resulted from these two concerts became the best-selling gospel record in history. The original plan was to make a movie in conjunction with the album, but for a host of technical and legal reasons, the film project floundered and was never released until now, almost 50 years after the fact. Franklin brought her own band with her. She's accompanied by the local pastor James Cleveland on piano and backed up by the 40-person Southern California Community Choir, The movie opens with few textual explanations, but otherwise there is no narration at all, just Aretha closing her eyes behind the pulpit, sweating profusely, and channeling herself through gospel song back to the things that she cared about most. Interestingly enough, Aretha herself sued two different times to prevent the release of this film, but three months after her death, and 46 years after the concert, the documentary opened in New York on November 12, 2018 and then in theaters in April 2019. Just one heads up, on the second night of the concert, there are several cameos of a very young Mick Jagger in the audience. And lastly, for poetry this week, Love, Three, by George Herbert. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 21st, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.